You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 102.7 FM. This is 3RRR. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hi, guys. Good evening to you both. <laughs> now, we're going to be looking at three films as is our want here on Plato's Cave. We're going to look at Knight of Cups. This is the new film by Terence Malick, where Christian Bale plays a successful Hollywood screenwriter trying to find himself. And then Inspector, the new James Bond film, Daniel Craig once more plays the iconic 007 agent, this time trying to find a global criminal syndicate. And then in the 1967 classic Two for the Road, screening at the British Film Festival, Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn play a married couple trying to refind the love in their marriage. But we're going to begin with Night of Cups. Yeah, Terence Malick. This is well. Where does one start with a Terence Malick film that I suspect has going is going to provoke? Uh, extreme and divergent views in the studio tonight, so strap yourself in. This is a continuation of the themes and impressionist, impressionistic style that Malik began to explore in The Tree of Life and continued exploring in To the Wonder, although many of these thematic and visual ideals you can trace right back to the very start of his career, at least they're there at least as early as The Thin Red Line in 1998. Now, similar to to the wonder, Knight of Cups, I think, suffers from feeling very slight in substance compared to the enormity of the Tree of Life and dangerously close to self-parody, which is some of the stuff I said about uh, to the wonder when we reviewed that on Plato's Cave back in 2013. And from memory, I think Tara Judah was kind of on my wavelength with that. But Josh Nelson, who I think will be back with us next week, was a huge fan. Um, but look, unlike... To the wonder, Knight of Cups involves a cast of actors who I believe can carry the tonal gravitas. And I think it's overall a less uh, murky film in intent. So the very basic story concerns Christian Bale as Rick, a Hollywood scriptwriter who is having a complete existential crisis. We discover one brother is dead, another is on the verge of an emotional breakdown, uh, and he's terrified of becoming emotionally vacant and distant like his father. He fills the void in his life with hedonistic indulgences, mainly attending a variety of, of lavish parties in Hollywood and elsewhere. And throughout the film, he hooks up with a series of women. This is sort of the main structure of the film, is the various relationships he has. And we'll probably continue... We'll probably discuss those at length, the, the nature of those relationships and what it all means uh, in a moment. But um, he has different types of relationships with each woman. But the common element is he seems to believe that they're going to heal him or at least return him to having a sense... Or at least return him to finding the, the, the sense of self that he can no longer find. And it's quite an extraordinary cast of women in this film who play his various uh, lovers, including uh, Kate Blanchett and Natalie Portman. Um, and he also turns to various forms of spiritual guidance. Um, the Pilgrim's Progress is read by John Gielgud, as read by John Gielgud, would have been recorded in the past, of course. He's heard throughout this film <laughs> on the sound. So. Yeah, otherwise, that's a hell of a coup, Malik. <laughs> um, but John Gielgud's Pilgrim's Progress is heard throughout the uh, film on the soundtrack. His father, played by Brian Dennehy, tells an old tale about a knight who drank from a cup and forgot who he was. Is is a is a clear metaphor for what for what Rick is going through. We hear we hear that story told once or twice. And there's a scene early in the film where he visits a tarot card reader, and the film is divided into chapters named after the tarot cards and and all these elements of course 
not of course, that all these elements contribute to the film's somewhat obscure title. So look, stylistically, the film is designed to evoke fragmented memories. There's lots of, lots of brief shots designed to create impressions of past or even imagined events. The physical space of this film is designed to reflect the psychological space. So there's lots of barren landscapes, empty, sterile houses and vacant studio backlots that, that Rick passes through. And in typical Malick fashion, there are, you, know, you get these really beautiful long tracking shots through these spaces. Actually, they're not long at all. They're very brief. There's so many very quick edits in this film in a way that I found really enchanting. And the overall stunning cinematography in this film renders absolutely everything beautiful. I, despite some reservations of this film, I was won over by the visual beauty of it. The, the enormity of this, the splendour in this film, I found really quite quite moving and profound. And I really love the way that the decadence of Hollywood and Las Vegas kind of was, had the same kind of weight and emotional beauty as some of the tranquil natural settings. And I think this keys into the final point I'm going to make, which is this film is once more wrestling with the very core idea that you get in Malick's films of trying the struggle between what is sort of defined in The Tree of Life anyway as the state of nature and, and the state of grace. This idea of the state of nature being a more animalistic urges that provide short-term fulfilment or, or, or lead us towards more materialistic p- pursuits versus a state of grace, a sort of high level of consciousness or, or, or spirituality. And the fact that spiritually uplifting things in this film kind of have the same desirability as materialistic soul-destroying things I think is part of Malick's visual representation of the struggle that, that Rick is going through, trying to find what it is that's really pure, that's going to help him find him, his sense of self. Uh, you know, uh, from a distance, having thought about this film a bit, standing back, I can kind of see how it, it, it's going to be incredibly frustrating for some people. And, and it is an indulgent film, but it's a Malick film. But where, where To the Wonder kind of lost me and I could never connect with it, I, I, I kind of really felt the enormity of Night, Night of Cups. And I think I'm going against the grain, but I, I really, really like this film, despite all my reservations. Josh Nelson, our sadly absent co-host, is also quite a fan of this film. Um, and I think that both of you guys have have flagged it in a, in a positive light certainly um indicates to me that perhaps i might have been missing something i'm not a hater and there are some real haters but for me ultimately i i, I felt that this was really just sort of brett easton ellis the mogadon years it i i think my my point of disconnect very much was christian bale who i'm, I'm not opposed to in any way but i just think very much that he put in one of the least engaging screen performances i've seen in years um, not that, he, and I don't mean I couldn't relate to the character. I like characters that I don't relate to. It just felt like he was just dialing it in. I get that there was a surface absence that was part of that character, but it just, I just found him very disengaged and disengaging. Um, that being said, I think that a lot of the women, as you said, Thomas, I think that the, the, the really key performances here by the women, and in a rare moment of patriotism for me, the Australian women, Kate Blanchett, but also Teresa Palmer and Isabel Lucas. They're all great, aren't they? They put in really... Yeah. Sp- and I love that they all kept their accents. That was nice. Yeah. Nobody being forced to use an American accent when they don't have one. Um, and, of course, like you mentioned, another big name, I think, of course, is um, the director of, photo- of photography, Emmanuel Lubeski who, of course, won back-to-back Oscars for Gravity and Birdman. He's kind of one of those big, big DOP names. He's worked with the Coens, Steven Soderbergh, Tim Burton, Mike Nichols, um, and has obviously worked with uh, Malick before. 
One of the things I really liked about this film, um, and I, maybe it got my hopes up from the start, but I, I guess um, one of the complaints that I've seen in reviews is that it just looked like a fashion shoot. But I think the, fla- the film flags that very consciously from the outset. There's this very unusual... Um, in it, not even in the first... I mean, it's, it's in the first couple of minutes. It's in the first five minutes where there's a sort of stop-motion, black-and-white sequence of a woman um, posing um, uh, with kind of body paint. Oh, yes. It's, sort of, it's, a, it's, a, visual, it's a piece of digital art. Yeah, it is. It starts off being a piece in the background and then it sort of becomes the, the full screen. Yeah, it only yeah. lasts a couple of seconds, but it's really disconnected from anything else in the film. Really direct reference to a guy called William Klein, who was a big 1960s fashion photographer, made an incredible film called Who Are You, Polly Magoo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing um, film. 1966, I think, off Thereabouts, the top of my head. There are some other great films too. Yeah, yeah. but he mm-hmm. was like the pop art guy like he was you know Paco Rabanne you had designers like that and we'll come back to Paco Rabanne perhaps later in the show um but yeah I love this little moment that flagged William Klein quite quite you know quite explicitly um and that really you know that idea of, of fashion photography and there's even a fashion shoot in the film I think that um really kind of continues this idea for me uh, didn't really go anywhere um I never want to hear Wojciech Kalar's Exodus ever again I usually really like music in Malick's films, even when I feel a little bit disconnected from them, perhaps, but the music it was a little bit of a overkill for me. Cerise, what do you think? Yeah, I loathed this film. <laughs> um, I'd like to say I loathed it passionately, but it didn't even inspire passion on, on any level, and that was the problem for me. I felt utterly alienated by it, and uh, it was quite devastating in a bland sort of way. I loved uh, Malick's film, um, The Tree of Life. It, uh, I, I, this does seem like self-parody to me, um, as, as this guy Rick just wanders around, as played by Christian Bale, uh, in and out of his body simultaneously. He doesn't seem to engage with anything going on around him, even though life is going on around him. People are talking to him. We only hear him in voiceover. I just find that whole strategy just in, infuriating and incredibly pretentious and earnest. That, my biggest problem with the film is just it's over... over um, over earnestness. I despise earnestness. And, um, she says earnestly. Earnestly, yeah. <laughs> I, I just could not engage with this at all. That, those images right at the very beginning were very striking. That The, the model with the, the peculiar face paint and a bit of digital trickery and head-on backwards sort of carry-on. But this, this just added up to me to a whole lot of nothing. Um, yes, there's some beautiful cinematography, all uh, tracking shots and Dutch angles and for me, none of it adding up to anything of any significance, really, that I could care less about whatsoever. So some middle-aged, successful Hollywood screenwriter or something is just wandering around trying to find meaning in his life and failing. I don't care. Um, and uh, I, I don't care about his family's problems. I could not. This film couldn't make me care about any of it because I just felt so distanced. And the film, yes, very consciously takes on a lot of distancing strategies as as Malik contemplates all of those things that that Michael Haneke Twitter account mocked him for for being <laughs> fascinated by. I don't know if that account's still alive. No, it's long gone. It's sadly. long gone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe there are a few less leaves and twigs in this film than in some of his others to be fixated <laughs> upon, but there's still lots of landscapes just intermittently. Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I get what he's getting at, I think. I just don't care. I mean, that's the film's big failing for me. I just flatly did not care. Bale was the film's failing for me. I don't know when, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, but when did Christian Bale become the poor man's Ethan Hawke? 
Like, that's what I kept thinking while I was watching this. It's like, this is a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world where I'm having thoughts like that. Facial hair there. I think there's a 90s facial hair yeah. link you going know what on. It, what occurred to me at one point is, I think, I mean, the strength of the Tree of Life is that incredible, you know, the, the majority of the film, the stuff with Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain and, and the family, that's kind of bookended with the Sean Penn character who plays one of the, the, the sons as an adult. And it felt like this was the film where the Sean Penn character became the focus. Yeah. And weirdly enough, I kind of, I do agree that Bale just kind of sleepwalks through this film. I think that's kind of part of the point. It doesn't make it uh, good viewing or not. <laughs> um, you know, like, like we were saying with Love last week, just because it achieved its aims doesn't mean it's a, a success. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I agree with you that I, I couldn't have cared less about this story. It, it wasn't that I was too concerned about whether he would find himself or not. Um, I didn't really have any investment in him or his family. I just, it was just that, that visual collage. And, and the, the music, I, yeah, the music and the way it was matched to the images just really won me over. I was quite transported despite myself because I went into this film with a real sense of I think Malik's lost it I did not like his last film this sounds like more of the same and it won me over it, and it, it's because I really got on board with that idea of you know the state of nature versus the state of grace which is a theme he has done a, a lot now but I really like the way he interrogates it visually so the story of this the storyline this film to me was almost irrelevant I think it is an irrelevant I mean I'll stand by what I said I think this is his slightest film mm. to date but I don't think it's his you know, I, I, I still found, found it really engaging because I just thought that the power of the, 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 the imagery was just so overwhelming that Hollywood contemplates its own navel, lose your soul in the city of palm trees kind of cliche. I, I think, I think it can be done well, yeah. but I think it's, I don't know if it's even it's that really film, corny. I, just, I mean, to me, it, like I said, it just felt like a kind of like diet Brett Easton Ellis, yeah, like and just, and that which isn't to me my as well. which isn't my thing either. Like, so I, I have to kind of flag that that I know that's not really my. Cup no, of I mean, uh, Brett Easton Ellis <laughs> lost me a long time ago. Did you just call him Brett Easton Ellis? You're probably not the <laughs> that tit. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Freud is paging. Um, uh, well, yeah, but I mean, the Christian Bale kind of character really yeah. does evoke American yeah. Psycho. I mean, the, funnily enough, the other filmmaker this reminded me a little bit of was Gaspar Noé. Um, because, I mean, I think Malick has always had some very interesting comparisons to Kubrick, but this felt like... Um, Malik doing Kubrick via Noé, and Noé does also like to do to do Kubrick. I mean, I, there, there are some weird similarities between this and Love. Funnily enough, I mean, they're both about vacuous characters trying to find meaning through through women. Um, I think this is the more successful film, um, partly because I think it just it, it looks better, and you know, the, the visual opulence won me over and because these women were all really interesting characters and I was a bit worried that the whole purpose of this film would be poor man he just needs to find the right woman but I think it was very clear that you know he had this fixed ideal that was never going to be nourished by any of these people and all the women came out of the film far stronger more impressive characters than him. The, the women, um, particularly the, the performers that I flagged, they, they really put in quite solid, um, certainly next to Bale, they were really quite striking. Frida Pinto as well yes. really struck me as well. But I did kind of got a little sick of the slow motion, high contrast silhouettes of women in gauzy see-through dresses. That yeah, started I, I, like, okay, this is a no pretty, this is a pretty mm -hmm. old filmmaker guy making film about pretty girls and yeah there was so gauzy uh, dresses I, I, swimming I found in the this nude. so leached of energy for all yeah. of these lovely compositions and uh, i think malik thinks this is weightier than than mm. it really is yep. it's uh, just yeah. i think it's oh. i think that's a fair comment yeah, yeah. it did feel a little, i mean I'm, i've 
I do have that sense with Malik, and I know that I'm not alone, but it is a little bit emperor wears no clothes. I think so, and I, I, I didn't care about the narrative. That was going to be a given. I don't think any of us did, but I just didn't care that he didn't care about the narrative either. I just didn't care. I just could not engage with this film. It was so frustrating. I haven't felt this annoyed by a film for quite a while, and um, I, I much preferred Love. As irritating I, I definitely preferred Love. As that protagonist was, um, at least it had some real energy and passion. I think it took, it took risks that, like you said, even if they didn't work, they weren't. Yeah, this felt yeah. all just a bit phoned in yeah. to me. And I don't, is Malik any the wiser about his existential crisis for having made this film? I shouldn't think so. It's no, but like you'll, be, you'll be pleased to know he's got another film that's in post. He's got another two films currently in post-production, so we'll find out soon. It really feels like that it's a kind of A-list CV filler. Like, you've got to do a Malik film <laughs> if you're anyone in this town. I still liked it a lot. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Our review of the new James Bond film, Spectre. Well, according to Wikipedia, this is the 24th Bond film, but they do not include the first Casino Royale with it's that the 24th from 19... official, yeah. Official. Yeah. So, yes, they're not including the Casino Royale from 1967, which is my favourite Bond film. We're... Uh, David Niven, Peter Sellers and Woody Allen all get turns to play James Bond. The 1967 Casino Royale was not directed by Sam Mendes. This one, however, was. Um, Daniel Craig, again, James Bond, usual testosterone-fueled colonial travelogue that these films always strike me to be as James kind of punches and shags his way across Mexico, London, Austria and Morocco. Now, here he's up against the criminal mastermind Ernst Stavro Blofeld, played by Christopher Waltz, and the ominous Spectre organisation, while at the same time contending with big changes uh, in the British government under the double O programme Skeptic C, played by Andrew Scott, placing the future of Bond and his boss M, Ray Fiennes, into uncertainty. As you can perhaps tell, I'm not fully indoctrinated into the cult of James Bond, but at the same time, I'm not a hater. These films have always struck me, I guess, as kind of dad films. They're handed down the patriarchal line by a generation of fathers that perhaps took the name a little bit Bond a little bit too literally, um, just as a way of connecting with their kids. I think you kind of have to be on board these films in a way to kind of really get into them or to really connect with them. And I'm not. But that being said, I think that it would, you know, they're so it's such an important franchise to so many people for so many different reasons. I think it would be a bit smug and mean to just kind of dismiss this film wholesale. So what I thought I think that there are really interesting things in this film and I thought that I would probably flag them a little bit more than my It's Not As Good As The 1967 Casino Royale with David Niven, Peter Sellers and Woody Allen. Um, I really liked the way that it dealt with the title, this idea of being haunted or kind of um, the the presence of this kind of old idea of James Bond um, and, you know, this question that, that comes throughout the whole film is, is James Bond still relevant? Is he necessary in, in the contemporary world? The idea of spectres and ghosts, I think, are formally rendered in really interesting ways. So people are constantly walking in and out of focus. There's a lot of reflections. I found that stuff really interesting. I also like that Bond is really overtly flawed. I mean, he acknowledges at one point that he drinks too much. Um, his house is this sort of depressing, unpacked cardboard box place. Um, there's also a really conscious decision in this film not to use the word spy. I think it's used once near the end. Um, they call him an, an assassin or a killer. Um, so the language, I think, makes some really interesting um, distinctions in, in this kind of the, the supposed glamour of, of Bond is played with a little bit. On the flip side, I was majorly disappointed, especially considering the hype with how Monica Bellucci was utilised in this film. I think that was one of my great, great disappointment. Um, disappointments. And I also thought that the 
political stuff was pretty ham-fisted, although I do think that the idea of government surveillance being presented as fundamentally evil and villainous is perhaps a kind of interesting or curious moral position to take in the current political climate. Um, two questions. I guess the first one is, Christopher Waltz, what the hell is going on with you? Have you always been terrible? Have I've only just noticed? And I think even more importantly, WTF with the Lovecraftian skull octopus tentacle <laughs> sex opening credit sequence. Yes. That was a bit. That was a bit special. Perhaps you have answers, Sarah. I don't have answers. No. Um, I mean, certainly they were quite octopusy, and I thought, is there a pun <laughs> in there? Is that what's going on? Why? Why are there's all this tentacular action with the usual shapely lady figures filling the screen? Uh, with the, the, the tentacles of the organisation oh, yeah. in everything. Yeah. Or is it the government? Is it the good guys or the bad guys? Or is it Cthulhu? And <laughs> maybe and the song, that would have been a great film. I thought the song was dreadful too, but you know, is that just me? I I it, didn't, didn't re- even register with no. me, but I, I don't care. Yeah, well, the songs <laughs> used to matter. I mean, yeah. they're really good. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, songs are timeless. The Shirley Bassey. There are some gorgeous okay. songs yeah. that have appeared yeah. in the Bond films. Uh-huh. Yes. Living Daylights. Can I? Duran Duran. Yeah, the which we have played on this show. <laughs> Shame on all of us. <laughs> I, uh, I felt very lukewarm about this uh, latest Bond film, whether it's the twenty fourth or twenty fifth. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I too was quite dismayed actually by Monica Bellucci's part in it, especially in that what little time she has on screen is her succumbing to Bond's utterly charmless charms. And there's, there's no chemistry between them whatsoever, and that whole scene actually made me feel quite uncomfortable. Very token. It's very not just token, but it just, yeah. I think, how did we get there? Because there's just no, no, um, no sparks. It's just actually icky. I found that icky. Um, the the opening sequences are quite spectacular. Uh, I, I guess they've figured out that it's not enough anymore just to, that Bond goes to lots of locations. But if you're going to go somewhere like Mexico City, let's do it on the Day of the Dead. I mean, let's have it as spectacular as it could possibly be and with a bit of a higher sense of jeopardy that maybe that with the crowd so full, which is also great for chase sequences, but with the, crowd, uh, the, the streets so full of uh, huge crowds and... A lot of aerial action. Surely something's going to plummet and wipe out a whole magnificent city or something like that. Whether that comes to pass is another thing. But it's uh, exciting. There's great set pieces. um, But ultimately, uh, again, if there's two films in a row where I felt it just doesn't add up to a whole lot. There's at least some allusions to contemporary society in this film that um, some of the problems that we are grappling with today not least being a surveillance society that we're we're behind closed doors not even just governments but uh multinationals and other sorts of shadowy organizations are keeping eyes on us all and not being entirely open or transparent about that and to what end i ask you is it for our own good or who's good who's good um but really, otherwise, it's it's all pretty standard. I, I didn't find anything, anyone in this particularly appealing. Christoph Waltz sort of phoned in a, a, a villainous performance, um, but would it have been half as villainous had he not had an accent? I mean, so much of this relies on stuff that by now is so hackneyed that it's... Uh, has, has, Bond went through, I'm, I'm told, I didn't see the Brosnan film so much, but people said this was sort of gave it life again, but it was quite parodic as well, but perhaps not as much as Roger Moore was. Now we seem to be somewhere very earnest once more. The earnestness brings about a sense of parody in its own right because it's just playing it too straight and and we're too wise. We've seen too many of the other 24 or 25 (laughs) Bond films to take all of this therapy seriously because ultimately it's very, very silly. 
You see, this is uh, this is the second film for me tonight that I went into expecting absolutely to get absolutely nothing out of, and really, really enjoyed. And I think it's because I had low expectations, and a lot of the stuff that's wrong with it I didn't care about because I think it's a minor detail. I mean, I I don't care about the plot or who does what or exactly how it all works. And I'm going to sound really mean, but when I hear people picking plot holes in films like these, I just think, really, you've got to grow up. Come on. Oh, it's a spectacle film. I know. These are silly films. Spectacle. It's a but um, I, I try to respect other people's fandom because we all yeah. have our thing. I yeah. really struggle to take the Bond thing seriously. And I've got a lot of very good friends who I respect who are into it. And I, it's a bit of a conflict because I don't care how he orders his freaking martini. I don't care what watch or car he drives. I just find all this stuff so trivially, trivial and banal. And, um, you know, I did not like... I didn't, didn't like Skyfall, which is a film a lot of people did enjoy because I thought that took the promise. I, I like the serious stuff. I like the promise of a serious bond that we got with Casino Royale and then it got sillier. You um, mean the second Casino Royale? The second Casino yeah, Royale, the, the, the official one. Not the um, Peter I'm Sellers. Just, I'm David just ignoring you. your baiting. <laughs> the, the, the official one that started Daniel Craig's reign as, as Bond. Um, and so I went to this accepting it was going to be a, you know, a little bit silly, but I... Um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, from a purely visual level, I thought it looked great. I enjoyed the cinematography a lot. I mean, the whole sequence in Rome, I don't know if it was just me, but it seemed very deliberately trying to evoke some of the um, cinematography from The Conformness. You've just got those kind of washed-out whites and big empty spaces, and I, I liked that. I thought the, the long take that starts the film in Mexico City was really exciting. I loved the sex-death stuff they were playing with. So Bond actually appears at the start of the film dressed as a black skeleton. It's a black suit with a white skeleton. And you know it's him just from his physicality. I mean, I do enjoy Daniel Craig as a performer, and even though I don't like the character, I like the way Craig embodies him. And Craig also in this film seems really aware of the fact that Bond is a fairly repulsive character that we're not meant Definitely. to idolise. And he's Definitely. said a hell of a lot of that. Yeah in press interviews so I, I was on board with the idea of this is a, a nasty cold inhuman character who who is careless about who he kills and who he sleeps with the Bellucci stuff was what a waste I mean I agree with you but again I, I kind of liked the idea that, that, that again that sex death thing his two main relationships in this film are both women who have lost somebody very close to them directly or indirectly because of Bond and then he goes and seduces them it's kind of part of this psychopath character and you know, we, and when he does have sex with Monica Bellucci, and we talked a bit about this on the breakfasters, it's up, it's up against the mirror, and it looks like he's basically shagging himself up against the mirror, and, and that's all he ever wants. He doesn't really care about the person in between him and his ideal image, which is basically himself. I really enjoyed that this film was about something. It was ham-fisted, it was superficial, but that's pretty good as far as Bond films go. And and the the links between surveillance and, you know, the government using surveillance to control its citizens versus this organisation using terrorism to control its people and how one feeds in to the other. And there's, there's even suggestions in this film of some kind of symbiotic link. It doesn't go too deep into that. But again, for a Bond film, it's, it's, you know, it's profound stuff for a Bond film. And I thought the relationship with the Leia Sadao character was handled really interestingly. I thought there was a real attempt there to sort of show us a, a more strong woman who would stand up to his nonsense. And I think there's a hint of his character being evolved. I think that we, we uh, an idea of softening, that he maybe actually might want more from her than a, a quick shag up against a mirror where he's looking at himself and, and not her. And then there's that fight on the train, that close quarters fight where the music stops. It's That's remarkable. Really exciting. When there's no music, it sort of strips away. It's almost like a defamiliarising of Bond because mm. there's just no... The music comes in at the end and it's almost a disappointment. I'd yeah, love yeah, to was, see them, yeah. like just, just the sound of meat 
hurting. Like, it just strips because away that glamour. they are two slabs of meat fighting. Yeah. It's a really unbondy film stylistically as well. I mean, again, the, the Bond fans I know complain about the fact that the score doesn't evoke the Bond films. I love the fact that you don't get, apart from the start and the end, you don't get the Bond theme. It's, it's quite a different, almost ephemeral score that... I found, you know, quite haunting at, at points. Yeah, this to me felt more like a film about the Bond films um, than a Bond film. And for someone who's cynical about the whole franchise, I really enjoyed it. I really like Ben Whishaw. I, I like Ben Whishaw anyway, yep. but every time I, I... His voice is always Paddington, and I do think I had these little, <laughs> little kind of images flash up in front of my eyes. Wouldn't it be great if Paddington was in this? Ben Whishaw was great. I just, Paddington is Q. That's, that's like my dream Bond. Like <laughs> Casino Royale, 1967, and Paddington in a contemporary James Bond film. I'm the demographic. Cater to me. Yeah. <laughs> Paddington, we are we are talking about the, the little fluffy... Yeah, there, the um, yeah. Ben Whishaw okay. voiced I, I Paddington the in the film. recent film. I heard good things. The film it's is gorgeous. glorious. Yeah. 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 Um, I, yeah I, I just did, bought a copy. I did, oh, me too. Oh, yes. <laughs> Even, though my, even though my son is way too old to uh, way too young to watch it, <laughs> I, I did quite enjoy Ben Whishaw in this. He had a, a presence, uh, his character as, as well, Q, um, not unlike Richard Ayoade in the IT That's crowd. That's exactly who I was yeah, thinking of. He had that same Very sort of much. awkward geekiness, uh, and yet good. and a bit in love with Bond too, which is kind of cute. Mm. Yeah, there's yeah. a great scene where he's sitting working at a desk, and the, the chair's too high, and you, you sort of notice that his feet are dangling above the ground. Just, just beautiful. Richard Ayoade is my choice for the next Bond. Don't know about you guys. But. It's a fabulous idea, actually. Yeah. Well, and again, though, just, just carrying on, there was a sense of more of a team here as well. I mean, that idea of the individualist hero who goes in and creates carnage is being eroded in this film. I mean, Bond needs his core team of people now, which is, you know, M, Q and Moneypenny, all played by really strong English actors. So I sort of did enjoy them having more of a posse. I mean, it feels like they've watched the last couple of Mission Impossible films and realised mm. that these films are far superior. How can we start to mimic them? I mean, they're not there yet, and I doubt they'll ever get there because the Bond f- franchise just has so much baggage they've got to put on top. But look, I, I, this film was an unexpected delight for me. I was not expecting to find it so enjoyable. And I got more or less what I expected. So <laughs> I, 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 I don't feel strongly really one way or the other. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 RRR 102.7 FM. You're with Thomas, Alexandra and Cerise. We just heard the theme from Two for the Road by the great Henry Mancini and his orchestra. The theme music to the 1967 film that he's currently playing as part of the British Film Festival, we decided to take a look. That we did, Thomas. That's my cue, isn't it? Excellent. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, it's a rather stylish little number from 1967 from one of the great Hollywood directors, Stanley Donan. Uh, Though... As we have mentioned, it's in the British Film Festival, from which we can conclude it is rather more British than Hollywood. Notwithstanding, it's, it's a UK production, yeah. yeah. Notwithstanding mm. that uh, it has a huge Hollywood star as one of its power couple uh, leads, uh, Joanna Wallace is played by none other than Audrey Hepburn, no stranger to the direction of Stanley Donan through previous classics like Funny Face mm. and Charade. Yeah. And more Mancini action in those, uh, at least in uh, Charade. I don't have a funny face. I can't remember its score. It's not important. I digress <laughs> so soon, so readily, so easily. The lead opposite, lovely Audrey, is the rather lovely, rather more knockabout, though Albert Finney as Mark Wallace. And the film is chiefly concerned with their relationship over 
a spread of maybe 10 or so years, 10 to 12 years. It's a bit difficult to tell exactly how many. Uh, and the ups and downs, which, as presented in this film, occur in um, multiple time strands which overlap in quite ingenious ways. This is a, a film which uh, formally is quite adventurous, still feels quite adventurous. Uh, it has uh, all manner of nifty ways of tying in the various strands of their romance, uh, which is either flourishing or seemingly coming to pieces and ch challenged by various uh, third parties who have entered the fray. Uh, as the the film regularly cuts from one to another, uh, really, really clever cuts on action or sometimes actually through one car appearing in shot. Mm. Uh, when you know, much of this being, well, the, the title suggests it too, for the road, sort of a road movie or roads movie or road movies, uh, one car from one narrative suddenly appears in the thick of another one and off we go and rejoin a, one that suddenly takes us back five years, ten years. As they feud and bicker or or uh, all over one another, full of uh, young love, um, youngish love. Um, neither were spring chickens exactly when these, this film was made. And I, I found them at first a not terribly attractive couple when we first meet them. They're feuding, they're at an airport. Uh, Mark seems to be putting ahead of his wife's interests, uh, being at the beck and call of someone named Maurice, who we will meet later. We don't know much about him, but we do twig that. They're just frustrated with one another, uh, but things must be going quite well. They, they can afford to have a Mercedes airlifted to Saint-Tropez or something like that. You, you it's, can't? Um, Come on. No, well, mate, I can't. Um, <laughs> But oh, the cars in this film are gorgeous. The clothes in this film are gorgeous. Uh, Audrey Hepburn especially um, is dressed by any number of hip designers of the swing London era, including Mary Quant. And uh, who did you mention? Paco Rabanne. Yeah, Paco Rabanne. The PVC numbers. Oh, that PVC numbers. Casually. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, the, in the most recent, in the, the latest time period, the, the sunglasses. She wears some There's really some amazing sunglass yeah. action. She does. And at one point she's even wearing a, a sort of a rugby shirt dress, which yeah. is actually gorgeous. I don't know how that is so, but it but just is. When you're Audrey Hepburn, you can. <laughs> you know, yeah. anything looks good <laughs> it does and in fact because the, the colour in this film is exquisite um, obviously shot on a particular well I'm told deluxe colour film stock it just looks gorgeous the reds pop the blues are, are lovely everything in it is in fact this is if there's something that unites all the films we've been talking about tonight it's a sense of a travelogue and this film takes us all over parts of France really scenic parts of France and has certain motifs throughout Mark is constantly losing a passport, only for Joanna to find it. Maybe she had it all along, that trickster. Mm. Um, one refrain we hear time and again, what kind of people can sit there without a word to say to each other? The rejoinder being married people, dismissively. <laughs> Increasingly, they realise they are such people. They are, later on in the various strands, married. In fact, they hang out with another married couple who provide an interesting counterpoint for quite a lot of the runtime, played by Eleanor Braun and William Daniels. Daniels? Uh, with someone playing an obnoxious little brat named Ruthie. Uh, the Manchester family are a truly hideous but quite uh, captivating uh, family unit, uh, which is both highly functional and dysfunctional. Highly functional in as much as one of them is a control freak who has everything notated to the nth degree and the kid's just an out-of-control brat in between them. It's explosive, you know, it's not going to end well and the Wallaces are going to want to... Flee. That's all quite good fun. There's some quite a bit of comedy in this film for all of the darkness and the surprisingly adult nature of exchanges between Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. I'm just not that used to seeing Audrey Hepburn 
say words like, oh, I don't know, sex, or uh, <laughs> just uh, gave, gave me a strange little frisson. And, um, mm. Much more than... Much, <laughs> Thomas, sorry, is, yeah. Thomas yeah. is having one now, yeah. I think. Yeah. M- much more so than Albert Finney's Humphrey Bogart impressions, which are actually <laughs> just bad and awkward. annoying and yeah. awkward. But, uh, but the, they called each other bitch and bastard, yeah, which I think was quite yeah. risque for yeah, the era. Yeah. yeah, definitely. There is a bit that uh, that does seem quite uh, contemporary, just um, especially stylistically. Formally, this film is is really quite inventive and and playful. There are sped up sequences. There are a clever sequence with a voiceover that's quite at odds with what's on in the image, um, showing uh, by way of demonstrating a betrayal. There's some fun superimpositions, and but especially the editing is really clever as we go from one timeline to another, uh, really, really ingeniously and energetically. And a couple that I found quite irritating to begin with, I was charmed by when we got to see more of how they first met, and the film just juggles that really adroitly i i just swooned watching mm. this film i adored it i fell so heavily in love with, with with them as a couple and with the film itself for many of the reasons you mentioned and what's really interesting about stanley donnan is he's such a classic hollywood old school director i mean he one of the key musical guys from you know that classic era i mean he did singing in the rain for yeah. goodness sake on the town on the town and funny face you mentioned yeah. and what what's really interesting in the kind of early mid-60s is Hollywood was a little bit derailed. The studio system was collapsing or had collapsed. Nobody quite knew what to do. It was before Easy Rider and there's been a lot of attention on that new Hollywood era of the late 60s and the 70s. But I've become really fascinated by this kind of middle period where no one quite knew what to do. But there were filmmakers starting to, to... to test the waters of what they could get away with. You know, films like um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and a lot of the stuff Otto Preminger were doing were being quite bold and, and modern. And then Stanley Donnan comes along and does something like Charade, which is such a throwback to old-school classic Hollywood films. And then two films later... We get two for the road, which is so indebted to the French New Wave with that non-lineal editing. I mean, not only do you have that weird lots of different time periods being cut into each other, those great graphic matches. It's like the characters from one time period intrude on the scene from another time period and then we follow them like that. It's really gorgeous. But but even there are scenes that are, that are condensed. So a single con- what seems like a single conversation is happening through jump cuts over, you know, three or four picnics in a row really bold in inventive stuff and they really talk about the dynamics of a marriage and and you know they get into some really sad and uncomfortable territory at times and yet because it's stanley donnan and because it's you know audrey hepburn and and um albert finney even when they're having the most uncomfortable sad troubling conversations it's still kind of witty and delightful it's a really interesting film to watch from a 2015 perspective because it's weirdly uh, anachronistic in a, in a lot of ways. Um, like you said, I mean, Donnan is classic Hollywood. Mm. I mean, and, and it's in his DNA. Like, you can feel that in this film. There's some real moments where it really threatens to go into quite overwrought melodrama. And I think the, the, the Mancini swell, mm. you know, the soundtrack really kind of implies that that might be where it's going. But I've, it, it never really, at the same time, like you said, I mean, there's, there's a lot about this film that's, that's really weirdly contemporary at the same time. The, aside from all the formal stuff, Cerise, that family that you mentioned, the Maxwell Manchesters, um, it's just such a cutting, really contemporary feeling kind of pastiche on progressive parenting. I was howling with laughter in all of those scenes. <laughs> yeah. Eleanor Braun um, as Kathy uh, Maxwell Manchester, she's like Joan Crawford. Like, she's just amazing, just this cooing... 
I mean, it's it's all about this sort of, you know, they're, they're stuck in a car with this uh, couple and their daughter, their hideous daughter, Ruthie, who I think enters the film with the question, D- why don't snakes have nipples? <laughs> I mean, what a way to make an entrance yeah. in a film. Listen up, Terrence Malick, that's how you do it. Um, really remarkable stuff. But they whisper don't... it while the character stares into the distance. Why don't they? <laughs> um, I mean, really wonderful stuff where the, the, the younger couple are sitting there quite quietly or... or um, I don't know if they're younger. They're the same age because they're... There's an, anyway, I digress. But, you know, they're, they're obviously very kind of conscious of not disciplining the child. And this is a child that obviously needs some kind of... Uh some kind of borders in place. Institutionalisation. She's spectacularly hideous, yeah. Ruthie. Um, and it's funny. I mean, it's mm. really, really funny. It's so, it's so now. Like, you know, you mm. kind of meet parents like that. And that bit with that couple who are the very control freak couple as well, who seem to be more interested in keeping to a schedule than enjoying themselves. Again, very contemporary. And there's a very funny sequence where they use, you know, f- fuss motion to um you know audrey hepburn her character wants to do a diversion he's like oh we haven't got time uh, okay we can do it quickly and that's where the, the the film goes into sort of this high speed frenzy and you see them get to this tourist destination and they don't even go inside it they get their photograph taken outside they buy postcards they have ice creams they do all the super all the superficial things associated with being a tourist and then drive off again it, it's a nice little yeah it's a nice little satire on on contemporary tourism there's a lot of uh, other l- lovely touches. Uh, one thing I, I, the film returns to time and again is a particular beach, and, and there's a real sadness uh, the more times we return to it because when we first see them there, they're having a lovely roll about in the sea on the beach, a little from here to eternity-ish. It's <laughs> gorgeous. In fact, this film really is quite referential to cinema generally. But later on, we see that this same beach is um, the site of... Uh, it, it, it both is, it represents Mark's success as an architect, uh, if one under the uh, shadowy influence of this Maurice character, who was part of a chance encounter on an earlier road trip. Um, after they what they, after some catastrophic bit of slapstick, a lot of little slapstick, good. But the, the the sense that this one this once a sacred place, a place of love where it really flourished, where uh, vows of marriage in that lovely sort of way were made later on, is where not just uh, little Tonka trucks are, but huge great construction, and and they're, they're really awkward scenes where they're trying to maintain the facade of this being a place of joy and they're at the beach and yet just behind them there's uh, skyscrapers being constructed and a resort going up Mm. and you get that real sense of how very very clearly the link there is the career is good in one sense it is an enabler Um, you can have a lovely car and then another lovely one and another one after that and you can travel and see the world get great frocks uh, but at the same time, uh, the relationship is put under great strain constantly. Well, I like the way that they... Sh- it wasn't just sort of clear-cut one or the other. You know, if you have one thing in your life, you lose out the other. They showed us the progression. You know, they begin, they begin as a broke, cup, a broke, silly couple in love, and their struggles are of a financial nature. And then later, when his career is taken off, they're on holiday, and he's constantly having to work, and his work is now intruded upon their relationship. And, you know, that, I think that's a, a struggle that so many people can identify that that constant fight to keep that work-life balance in check. I mean, we all need a certain level of income, but at what point do we get absorbed with our pursuit of income that it sort of takes away from our, you know, from our what we actually enjoy, what life's meant to be about? And it's modern and sophisticated with the way it portrays that. And likewise, it deals with the, the topic of infidelity as well in a way that I found um, surprisingly sophisticated too from a film of this era. 
Audrey Hepburn in particular, there's a real anger in her in this film. I think that this is really mm-hmm. lost in the, in the canon of Audrey Hepburn films. I confess to not being a massive Hepburn fan. Um, I do very much like her later era sort of post-Breakfast at Tiffany's stuff a lot more. She did a, an amazing film called The Children's Hour. Um, just after well, think- Breakfast at Tiffany's with Shirley MacLaine. Yeah. And to me, that was like the big spike in her doing these more interesting, darker, angrier roles. Wake, uh, something, Wake After Dark? Wake. Oh, Wait Until Dark? Wait Until Dark. Yep. Like things like that. There's this real fury that she. She's that you don't like- unite with her, that you don't think of her as being a kind of angry actor, but there's this really. Yeah. She seems to repress fury well, and I think this film sums, really captures that. I've always adored her because she's, you know, I mean, she, in many ways she's the original pixie dream girl, but um, she's a bit like Vivian Lee or Marilyn Monroe or all these amazing. Uh, women actors of the era who are stunning and it's only later in their career they were, they got to act they were given real roles i mean vivian lee's late stuff is amazing marilyn monroe's stuff is such strong acting i mean it's it's it's, it's just such a tragedy that this industry didn't give these wonderful performers more more scope to perform mm-hmm. and yeah and this is one of the films where you really see hepburn acting i don't think she gets to act in a lot of those yeah. earlier yep, she's classic films no i yeah. agree um Oh, she's given a really sparkling script to work with as well, yep. and, and none of it's obvious. None of the exchanges are obvious. It's not cliché or, or hackneyed phrases bouncing back and forth. It's, uh, it's witty and funny and awkward and all, all of those things that smack of actual, real, lived experience and heartbreak, but joy and all the whole gamut of human emotion. <laughs> Old-fashioned sparks and like, yeah. electricity and between both of them. Too. Charisma. Goes a long way, folks. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's refreshing to see a film like this every now and then to go, oh, that's right, film can be this joyous but intelligent and respectful as well, yeah. I'm glad we ended tonight's show on a film that we all were very much enthusiastic about. Aww. We got there. There's only a few screenings left of Two for the Road. It's screening tomorrow night and Wednesday night as part of the Love Actually, a century of British romance program at the BBC First British Film Festival presented by Palace. Go to britishfilmfestival.com.au for details. Tonight on Plato's Cave, we also discussed Night of Cups. That's screening at Cinema Nova and Palace Brighton Bay through Roadshow Films. And we also looked at Spectre. That's on wide release through Sony Pictures. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell. I've been with Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Josh Nelson will be back in the cave next week. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Is it <laughs> Josh Nelson. Yeah. The Josh Nelson is back. He can speak for himself this time. We've done a little bit of speaking for him on tonight's episode, so it'll be good to, to have him in person. Uh, we're going to look at, among other things, the final film in the Hunger Game series. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.